Hello there, my name is Jenny Vasquez Newsom, and I am the guest host of season two of Mission Megaphone, a podcast production of Growth Network Podcast. In this season of Mission Megaphone, we are amplifying the overlooked leadership experiences and expertise of leaders of color. These conversations will challenge traditional definitions of leadership, disrupting the status quo by centering the skill, ingenuity, and capabilities of impactful BIPOC identifying leaders from across industries. And my guest today is Mariah Rankin-Landers, co-founder of Studio Pathways, which provides an inquiry-based approach to culturally responsive teaching and learning, partnering with schools, districts, and organizations like National Arts and Education Association, the Kennedy Center, and the Apollo. And I'm so thrilled to have you as a guest in conversation today, Mariah. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I figure we'll start pretty broad and tell us a little bit more about what you do. And, you know, knowing that we define that very widely, it doesn't necessarily have to be only professional. Like, what do you do? I would say that I am in the work of transformation. So a big part of what Studio Pathways does is we translate the role of pedagogy, which is a term in teaching and learning that is about your philosophy of education. And we translate that to the role of culture and culture for leading culture that is leading forward change. So it's really a strategy. We're supporting people to have a different idea around how transformation happens, moving from like mission-based to more pedagogically driven, which means that you're going to have a stance of embodiment and you're going to be working on values and ethics and core ideas about being human and just the human development process in and of itself that hopefully lead to cultures of belonging because that's at the core of our work is getting to that point. I feel like there's just a long story to what the work is. So I, backstory is that I come from teaching and learning. So I have a line of teachers on my mom's side and a line of farming on my dad's side. And I sort of stuck with the teaching line. And I did that begrudgingly. I really did not want to ever be a teacher, (laughs) but it turns out I was really good at it. And so I went into teaching. I taught kindergarten, special ed, a little bit of middle school, and In that role, I really understood the power of intention, the power of love, the power of purpose, and what humanizing methods for teaching can be and humanizing modalities for learners. So I was the teacher that always steered away from canned curriculum. I really was not favored by my principals because of it. But I was adored by my students and families. So I was able to activate the role of uh, the arts. The arts became my way in to disrupt harmful narratives, harmful practices and education. And really took me on a journey of looking at education in a different way. And so when I left the classroom, I went into administration and was able to support teachers to professionally grow their wisdom around the role of the arts and in connection with culture and being responsive to the world, to each other in more profound ways. And that has really evolved to doing work directly with schools, directly with institution and now philanthropy. So we're doing a lot of like org change work where people are still trying to understand this idea of DEI, which I don't like the concept of DEI, but that's how it's posed to the world. We're really Mm. supporting a more, I would say, precise 
and deliberate intervention here, a way of looking, knowing, growing, understanding ideas like around power, narrative, lineage, ideas around caste, ideas around just all of the social analysis that we have to do in our U.S. context. We're deepening the ideas and knowledge around that in ways that's going to support people to have higher consciousness, deeper wisdom, and hopefully understand the role of collectivism in our work and building. Thank you for sharing. I love it because it's sharing kind of the origins of the work that we see today is such a big piece of understanding kind of the, the leadership impact that we can have, really thinking back to our own origin stories. And I'd love to explore with you, particularly having experienced education, all of us experience education in some way, shape or form. What part of your origin story informed your decision to challenge the traditional ways of pedagogy and like really operate differently than what was expected from administration, what, what's expected of teachers? What fueled that for you? There's so much emotion behind that. One, my lived experience, right? Walking in this world in a Black body and being exotified most of my young life, being told I didn't belong to either part of, of my intersectional identities. I really kind of experienced othering my entire life to the point where I just kind of feel like, am I an alien just kind of observing this planet? Like that's how I'm sort of treated or had been treated on this planet. And so I saw a real opportunity of not seeing myself recognized in my education experience that was, you know, largely driven by whiteness, largely driven. I had three Black teachers my entire K through 12 experience. My first Black teacher I didn't get until I was in junior high. And that has an impact on you. So once I really understood systemically what was happening, historically what was happening, you know, developing a critical mind in college around these ideas, I really became quite, it became quite clear to me what my role could be. And so I was able to identify myself as, I wouldn't call myself an activist, though some might, I really consider myself more of like a healer. And I love mm -hmm. to visualize and actualize the potentiality and I love to live in that future space because it's more comfortable sometimes than living here because I can activate it differently. I can imagine it differently and I can aim for something that is a hope and a, and a desire for what can be. And so I've really applied that to the process of teaching and learning. Like, how can this be different? How can we course correct? And I've had, I'm so fortunate to have had a platform to do that work in deep and meaningful ways, not just kind of, you know, polka dotted here and there, but I get to really like hone in and support different organizations and schools. And that is very powerful. If you kind of reflect on your trajectory and really thinking about origins to now, have there been some critical moments that have shaped your direction? And what, what were those moments, if any? This is a difficult question. There are a lot. First of all, you know, it's like everyone you come across is going to have some influence. Like if you're truly activating yourself as a learner in the world, everyone can bring something to you. So that's, that's 
where the harvest is, but I have some pivotal moments. One is in this youth group that I was a part of, and this youth group had like sponsors, like adult sponsors, and the adults would facilitate the growth of the young people. So at an early age, I got the concept of I'm facilitating and holding. I'm not doing this to children. I'm here guiding, right? Mm -hmm. And there was one sponsor in particular who, when I was running for this international office that the youth group had, um, it came down to me and another person. And in the runoff, I was sort of like giving up. I was like, I don't want to take this away from Maya. Maya should have this role. Like, she's so great. And my sponsor could see what I was doing on stage. And he pulled me over and he was like, don't you dare diminish your light. And I, and I tell you, like, I kind of remember every moment of him just pulling me aside and looking me dead in the eyes and saying, you're not having any of this, Mariah. <laughs> you better get up there and claim some space. And I think I was the first Black uh, international officer for that group, if I'm correct. So that's transformational. That was like where I really had the beginnings of what I know to understand as, you know, claiming and taking up space and not letting my voice be diminished just because I think others might be more deserving. We all know this is the entanglement of Blackness and and experiencing Blackness in the U.S. Um, so that was pivotal. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. And I want to dig into your definitions of leadership and, and really kind of thinking about this idea of con uh, untapped leadership as we move through. But I have to come back to something you mentioned a little earlier in your introduction around like not being a fan of or uh, liking kind of DEI, quote unquote, as like a concept. Or I'd love to for you to unpack that a little bit. What do you mean? What I mean is, I'm pretty sure it was developed in the imagination of white folks because Philanthropists took to it quick, right? They're like, we're going to start funding DEI. George Floyd happened. Let's do this. And what it is for me is like diversity is great, but it's like diverse towards what? Like you want us to diversify your white space? Um, when, why are we not thinking about this in the context of humanity and equality and equity? So equity is a term that I'm like, I'm fine with that term. But inclusion also is like, the feeling of, okay, we're here. We would like to include you. Yes, please. And what that does is diminishes the full context of the richness of our lives, the richness of our wisdom. And it, it's a dismissal of our humanity, actually. Used in the right context, mm -hmm. it has value. But in the sense of everyone practicing DEI, it's like we're doing something, again, for the benefit of white people not approaching it as, you know, I'd say the large, the large context of whiteness is like there's work to be done spiritually, emotionally, collectively, that is really about repair and um, acknowledging the harms that have taken place and understanding whiteness in terms of a body and what that represents and means, regardless of like what you might be like so enlightened right now in a white body. But also, if you step into a room of all Black folk, you might be seen as the oppressor just because you're in a white body. So if there's not an awareness like that, there's a lot of work to do, right? I feel like all things are very complex. There's no Black and white when we're talking about Black and white. 
And I think there needs to be a different approach that is about, again, resolving, reckoning, um, working towards a place of reconciliation that I think is years, centuries down the road. Hopefully it's not centuries. Um, But I do think that we are, are starting to really do the work and particularly, you know, I do live in the West Coast bubble, so I see a lot more of it. So I know that there's a lot of uh, space for growth to be developed around this topic. Um, I, I think that's why we rest in calling it cultures of belonging so that we can really see ourselves more fully and start to understand individuals as individuals with complex lives, with deep histories and knowledge sets. When we can do that, when we can activate from spaces of lineage, a lot of times there's work to be done down a, a line of lineage, and that doesn't mean just bloodline, but also chosen lineages to, again, reckon with and then lead and grow towards repair and knowing that there's just like layers and layers to our intersectional lives. So that's a lot of the work that I am doing <laughs> with organizations is saying it's not about DEI, which is often represented as checklists, often represented as, okay, I got the vocab down. Okay, uh, I understand this this concept or that concept, but it's not practiced in the body or it's not fully understood in a deeper context. And it doesn't actually become transformational when something is just a checklist. So that's the the work of pedagogy is moving folks along a an arc that is going to be more supportive and get us to actualized places of being healthier together. Thank you for unpacking that. Um, I think it resonates so much, particularly for the, the work I do as well, is just really building leadership frameworks based in the expertise and experience of racially marginalized leaders. And it gets confused or conflated with DEI, but it, it really is leadership um, amidst inequitable systems like what you know it's really redefining what we mean just because it's you know it's our leadership doesn't mean it's quote unquote dei uh in that sense so i appreciate it that's why i was like let me come back to that well yes because i'll just an example of this is like a black artist black yeah. artists often are told to do black art and so a lot of my friends that are artists are like saying i am an artist and here's my art Yes, I can make whatever it is, and it's still black because I am, if I'm just doing triangles, it's still black art because I am black, right? Like there's an expectation that it looks a certain way so that it reaches a certain, I mean, we go into the whole world, but that's another topic. But the layers, the layers. So how would you define leadership when you're kind of thinking about your experiences, your own leadership, what you've seen, what you, you know, everything, um, how would you define it for yourself? Well, I, I think the first, I'm going to bypass listening. A lot of people say it's listening. <laughs> it's, it's following, right? <laughs> and if we, if we just kind of unearth that for a moment, what's behind listening is observation. And when you are deeply listening to somebody, you are observing first, you know, kind of like exterior, like gestures and nonverbal communication, um, and then you're also observing a story, like usually people are telling a story and you have to activate 
and imagination, right? Like you have to kind of work with your mind to see what they're talking about and formulate these ideas or images and pictures in your mind as you're doing so. So that's like the work of observation. And I think when you can observe deeply, you can then really be more responsive with how you're leading space, how you're leading company, a company, how you're leading in general, um, because you are deeply observant, you are able to tap into, I would say, more knowledge sets if you're observing quite deeply as an artist would. And therefore, that's giving you more insight, um, allowing you to be a little bit more, more still before you make a decision before you activate an idea. And that's going to have more clarity. And I also think that's connected to creativity. And I think creativity is something that is at the pulse of every human. We're constantly being creative in this world. And I think that people aren't talking about it in terms like in terms of a dynamic tool that is um, a guiding force in our lives. And I think observation connected to creativity is a pretty dynamic combination to have as a leader. That's where we get big ideas, right? Like you get a big idea, you need that observation. How am I going to get to that big idea? Observation requires, again, a lot of reflection. So these are like habits of mind and they're, they're parts of ways of being that I see a lot, of, a lot of artists holding. So I am in love with the artist. I don't know if that's been clear yet, but I have a little fascination with the artist because I think that they're profound thinkers and critical investigators of the world. They are using creative inquiry in a way that is uh, deeply profound and changing how we think and consume of the world. So I feel like those are powerful ways that a leader can activate like transformative leadership, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And see, I, for me, you know, what I hear is like they grounded in context and the contextual realities of ourselves, of others, all you have to have that awareness to lead with it, you know, to make decisions upon, to create within. And, you know, I think that that resonates uh, quite a bit for me. How do you, like in thinking about your day-to-day, -day, your work, how do you exercise that leadership? How does that come in to what you do? I mean, I take it in the world so much. I'm constantly absorbing like information, like podcasts, research books, museums. I'm in practice, so I have a studio practice. I'm constantly learning things. Like I'm learning French right now. I'm learning how to sail. These things support me to have more knowledge about the world. What does that look like? How does that happen in the day-to-day, -day, in the, you know, the year, whatever that may be? How do you actually do that? So in my engagement with the world, it means that the more knowledge that I have, like I'm coming again, like as this full human being, and I'm, I'm interested in building up my context of the world building up the knowledge sets that I have so that I can deepen my own wisdom of the world around me and my engagement in it. And then when I am activating that, I'm activating from all of this richness of the experiences that I've had over this lifetime. Um, all of that gets to be what people receive. So I want people to receive someone that is loved-based, 
someone that is joyful, someone that is curious and has a lot of insight about a lot of different things. And it's not all just happy-go-lucky. Like there's a lot of trauma involved, which also brings forms of wisdom. Here we are, right? We know how to navigate a lot more with all that happens in life. And that helps us make choices. That helps us understand um, what choices to make, how to make those choices, how to build, how to connect, all of that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thinking about you know again your your origins, you're starting in the classroom and you know really building and or co-founding an organization and really leading in the ways that you think are impactful, like meaningful, necessary in today's age, what have been experiences that have promoted that leadership that like you've been, been in spaces that valued that approach? And what are maybe experiences that have inhibited that, um, if, if any? Um, I think there's a little bit of blood origin here that I'm going to talk to. So coming from a single mother who came from a single mother, I think that there's a lot of deep wisdom that I come from in terms of just like how to get by in the world. And then also coming from my father who also was like a hustler and did multi-varied projects all the time, knew how to bring in wealth. That is like at core of like me, right? So I'm always like, how do I sustain and have like a healthy personal economy. So there's that part that I think that I come from origins, which have taught me well. Things that have really helped me as a leader, one, my youth group, I have to just like having something that profoundly developed me as a young person. I can't speak enough about. Um, I went from that youth group to a camp situation, working with children with, with type 1 diabetes. And that also was a rich leadership experience. So um, really building myself outside of my hometown, essentially, um, which I think was pivotal for me coming from a small uh, Central Valley town. Like I think in more in recent years, it's been like really beautiful fellowships. So I was a fellow for the National Arts Strategies and, you know, got to do a Harvard business program. I was a fellow for Rockwood Institute. They're great. Again, amazing. That's kind of where I was like, oh, I'm starting to put together the language of who I am, how I am, how do I activate? And also um, Yerba Buena Center for the Arts here in San Francisco is a place that has really become a grounding place where I was able to activate myself as an artist in the world. And that has been really pivotal. I was able to be a fellow for them. And then uh, I've been a huge supporter of their work. But those were things that have helped. Things that have hindered are really places where the operating standard is white supremacy. So in schools where there's a standard, there's, there's a standard of this is how we do school. And really, you know, that started with No Child Left Behind. Like I have a thing about No Child Left Behind. That really hindered me as a teacher. Actually, that policy, that national policy drove me to make different choices in where I taught. So I selected charter schools and avoided public schools for a long time because at a charter school back in the early aughts, I could find schools that were more interested in the child and in authentic learning. 
that being said, I also wanted to work in spaces where I knew that children weren't receiving the type of education that I believed in. So I did work in school contexts that were 98% African-American. And those schools took on approaches that I still believe are experienced as white supremacy. They're they're not liberatory spaces. And those things really hindered me. Those hindered me as a woman, a Black woman, a creative person, a soulful person. And in the vein of school, uh, when I worked in an administrative institute, that also was a place that really took me down, like sucked my spirit, um, was a daily challenge to show up for in that space. Just the environment itself was boxes, right? It was like the typical, go to your little box, sit down and do your work. (laughs) And so that had an impact on my body. You know, I was able to survive that because the work was so beautiful. What I was actually doing was supporting teachers. And when I could go out to schools and build these programs, that was a miracle. That was what I knew was making a difference in these really harsh places. Yeah. I often think about education when we're, when I'm thinking about untapped leadership, uh, just because these are pretty embedded, deeply embedded systems that don't change or don't, you know, it's really difficult to unlearn what learning should look like. Um, So yeah, I always just reflect on my own educational experiences and how almost like diminishing the experience can be as a student if you're kind of going through the quote unquote traditional route. And it doesn't have to be that way. Thank you for sharing that and for the the candor um, on the experiences. Um, When you think about the leadership, the people, the leaders that have really informed you, uh, who do you think of? Who inspires you when you look to leadership? It could be now, it could be present, and the past, it could be uh, small examples, big examples, whoever. Um, leadership exists everywhere, I would imagine. So who comes to mind and why do they come to mind? I just am so lucky to have like just incredibly wise, intelligent people in my life. And a circle of people that are really deeply ingrained and activated in making change in this world. And so they're doing that in ways that some of it is highly visible. Some of it is not visible at all, but we know the work is happening. And I love being in time and space with them anytime I'm with with them um, because I'm always learning and growing just, again, observation. And we kind of you know, there's a lot of reciprocity in how we spend time together. We can exchange ideas or we like support each other in like the design of a new house or, you know, just like cooking food in a new way. Like it's just fun. So I really love my friends. I think one thing that I've learned is that famous people are famous people. (laughs) Usually when you meet those famous people, they kind of break your heart. You're like, oh, You're just a person. <laughs> but I, I am motivated by, you know, folks like Maxine Green in education. She was a big philosopher around creative education. Sir Ken Robinson. Maya Angelou, of course, like transformed my life in high school. I feel like Maya really saved me 
in 10th grade. Bell hooks, you know, all, all of the, all of the beautiful found women that have really made a difference and, and Ken Sir, Ken Robinson, um, <laughs> just because he's got the, the, the art and creativity precision of communicating that role so profoundly. But again, he follows Maxine Green. So um, I always want to make sure that people know the lineages of folks and how they were on the planet at the same time. And so there's like some ideas are shared. It's not just a white body that had this particular idea around art and education. Actually, it was coming from many different voices. And then, uh, you know, I do want to mention Zaretta Hammond, who um, also really was pivotal in transforming how I could communicate the role of culturally responsive teaching through an art form. She's a dynamic, wise, incredible leader in the world. Thank you for lifting out those inspiring leaders for you. I think, you know, we always... You're right. Like, a lot of times we go to the big names, the high ups, the, you know, all these, like, spaces where we think about leadership, but it can really exist in all these different ways, through friends, through writers. Um, so, yeah. When you think about kind of, you know, who's informed your leadership, who's inspired you, how you define leadership, and thinking about the landscape of leadership today, um, even just kind of the histories of leadership, like what we usually define as leadership, what is common, what's a misconception that you would say we commonly think of when we think of quote unquote leadership? What is, what is something that you see uh, often misconceived as leadership, but maybe you would define differently, if anything? I think there remains this idea that it's actualized as a hierarchy, that to be a leader means like you're up here on an upper hierarchy and you're above most people. When in actuality, I think I think leadership is like an orientation that we all have. And so if we can activate it as an orientation and an understanding that everyone has this concept of leadership that is is in them, can be activated or deactivated, it's everybody, right? And thinking about activating that leadership, thinking about, you know, this idea of untapped leadership potential that sits within all of us, within students, within youth, within, you know, in, in places that aren't traditionally looked to for quote unquote leadership, right? the hierarchical definition of it. What are one to two things that someone listening to this conversation, thinking about, you know, the untapped leadership potential, what are a couple of things that you can do either for yourself to activate that leadership or to activate it on behalf of others, um, regardless of how you identify, regardless of who you are, what would you say? How can people do this? Recognize your strengths. So some people like to say, recognize your gifts. Just recognize who you are and find what you value about your, your own capacity to enter and engage in the world in a reciprocal way. I would add to that that often leadership is handed to the people that have the biggest voice, right? That take up and claim the most space, which is something I had to do back when I was 16. I really had to make an effort to do that. That is not something that is actually supported throughout the experiences of people on the planet. So 
I'll try to be more precise about this. So leadership is mm-hmm. is sort of given to people that live in the caste system in the upper hierarchy of our U.S. caste system, which means they're most likely to be white, cis, het men, right? So because we have structured and designed a system that says you get to be the leader, you get to make the choices, we actually want to flip that script on understanding, right? And so if we can activate leadership as an orientation within everybody and then just really understand that for folks that have been marginalized, that have been pushed to the margins of our society, because we have had to navigate a world through all of these layers of the U.S. caste system and all of the barriers that exist to have like these full actualized healthy economies, et cetera. We actually have so much knowledge and wisdom about the world. And so in fact, when we flip the script and make space for and prioritize what we can also call the, the global majority of folks on this planet, therein is this wealth of deep knowledge, wealth of deep wisdom that's coming from generations back, there's a way that we have had to develop deeper lenses. We've had to expand those lenses. So we see more, we know more, I'm just going to say it. And therefore, people should be listening and observing with purpose and intention. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I mean, that is really where the work around untapped leadership and the the thesis of this work is that you know from our marginalized standpoints actually exists a deeper sense of awareness of reality of you know knowledge of reality that gives us the essential information the essential experience that is needed to lead Um, otherwise if you don't have that full context, if you don't have that awareness, then, you know, your leadership runs the risk of just perpetuating a status quo that supports you at the top. (laughs) And so um, thank you for explaining that so well, uh, that and kind of really hitting it on the nose as, as far as what our potential is to uncover unpack, uh, you know, unearth the untapped leadership that has been pushed uh, to the margins um, and what, you know, now this is our opportunity to create in a way that that brings that to the center. That's what we urgently need, <laughs> I would say. Last question. Thinking about your year coming up, uh, what are your big ambitions for the year? What's on deck for you in this this coming year or so? What What are you excited about? What are you up to? Uh, I just submitted my manuscript for my book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that I, yes. yes, thank you so much. No one told me how hard it was actually going to be to write a book. And I'm connected to many authors. So this is co-authored with my- <laughs> It's a little like childbirth that yes. no one tells you. <laughs> yes. I mean- Birthing a book is, yeah. <laughs> I was tired to the point where I thought I was going to have to drive myself to the hospital. It was like, oh my gosh, I've never felt this level of tired before. Anyway, it is co-written with my incredible, beautiful, talented co-founder, Jessica Moreno. We agonized over every word choice. And I think, you know, we both have a little bit of perfectionist in us. But it was truly 
a one of a kind of experience to write a book in the midst of a deeply wild year last year. And we submitted it on Valentine's Day, which I just have to tell you is my favorite day because it is um, essentially about love. I'm not about the capitalistic, you know, that part of it, but I truly love hearts. I'm so sorry. I just love the shape, the colors. I'm all about it. And our book is called Do Your Lessons Love Your Students. So we did not plan for it to be done and submitted on Valentine's Day, but that is how it worked out. And I'm so excited. So that comes out later this year. I love that. Yeah. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. It's big. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we're doing a lot of incredible projects with folks. I'm being vague because I have signed a lot of NDAs. <laughs> But there's a lot of beautiful transformation work happening that I'm really uh, excited to be a part of. Yeah, just look forward to talking more to people. I want to, again, like go back to that 16-year-old and and take up more space in terms of, of sharing the wisdom and talking about it because I'm a naturally shy person. But I, I think that I one of my goals is to actually be on stage more, talk more, share the work, and not be afraid to talk about what I'm passionate about in places where it doesn't make sense. Like it hasn't made sense for people, this idea of art and transformation and um, cultures of belonging, but I know how it all connects and I want the world to understand too. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your expertise and knowledge today. I love how you've synthesized a lot of what can happen when we really ignite the, the leadership that is from our point of view, from our experiences, and like really within our standpoint. Um, where can folks kind of keep in touch with you and, and with Studio Pathways? Are you on socials? How else can folks follow this story and, and buy that book when it comes out? <laughs> buy the book. Uh, we're on socials. It's not my favorite place to hang out, but we're on all the things. <laughs> we're uh, studiopathways.org is the website. Um, also, Rise Up in American Curriculum is a free website that we worked on maybe six years ago now um, that is out there for the world. Yeah, that's, that's where you can find it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mariah. This was such a pleasure and a privilege, and I... Thank you for the contributions you bring to this earth. They're needed, so I appreciate you. Oh, it was a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed our conversation today.